Father, as we each day gather together, each Sunday as we gather together as we are this morning, we have to again thank you for the promises in your word that where two or three are gathered in your name, that you are there in the, in the midst with us. We know, Father, you're here to instruct us, that your purpose is to cause us to grow each day in our, in our knowledge of the Lord. Father, we ask that you will strengthen our faith. We ask, Lord, that as we face the exigencies of life, our faith will be made strong, and we will truly be lights and salt in this earth. Father, I pray that you'll give us right attitudes and right desires, and to be able to recognize the wiles of the evil one, that we might walk wide of those wiles, walking faithfully with you. And I pray that your word will give us that instruction, that it will be fixed in our hearts, that it will keep our minds on you. As we study further in the life of Joseph today, we ask that your Holy Spirit will be upon us to accomplish your perfect will. Lord, be with us and minister by the power of your Spirit in Christ's name. Amen. I would like to begin this morning by reading from Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 25. Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 25. Thank you, Norma. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will bring it about quickly. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land. Let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority, and let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish during the famine. Over these past weeks, actually months, we've been studying through this portion of Genesis in the life of this man, Joseph. And Joseph, of course, in many instances has been lionized by many common commentators some have almost portrayed him as if he were guiltless and sinless, but of course we know that he was not. But we must recognize that even as we're told in James in, in speaking about prayer and the power of prayer of God's people, that uh, 
Elijah, we're told, was a man even as we are. And so was Joseph, a man even as we are. And so we must look upon him that way and recognize, though, that God is at work bringing great things to, to uh, pass through the power of his spirit working through this particular individual. I've got my notes all on the wrong page here. I thought this was uh, July. <laughs> we did read the right passage. Remember, where Joseph is, Joseph is a young slave convict. Now think about that for a minute. Can you consider or think of a much worse condition to be in? Anywhere, anytime really, in history than to be a young foreign slave convict. And for him to presume to give advice to probably the man who was the mightiest ruler of that day in the world even, would have been even under normal conditions the height of audacity and probably would have resulted in, under most circumstances, in instant death. You presume to tell the Pharaoh what to do. In Egyptian eyes, we have to remember that, that Joseph was a nobody. Being foreign, being a man who was entered Egypt as a slave and then was in prison on top of that, he was a nobody. Whereas Pharaoh is, in the eyes of the Egyptians, the son of God, the god Horus. And, and he is the ruler of all Egypt. His word is absolute law, as if it were the very words of God himself. And yet here this barbarian nobody, as it were, is giving advice on how to run the country to Pharaoh. From the human point of view, it's a very audacious, ludicrous situation, really. To me, this whole scenario is, is, a, is an excellent example of the truth which we find in 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to turn to that for a minute, 1 Corinthians, first chapter, and read a few verses there because I think it relates what we're seeing here to what we need to think about daily in our own lives. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And you think about this passage where, where God says uh, here that he's chosen the, the base things of the world and that which is despised. That's exactly what Joseph was as far as the Egyptians were concerned. He, he was no one. He was based. He was despised. He was foreign. He, he was in the lowliest condition in Egypt. And yet God would use this man not only to bless Egypt, but to save Egypt. And of course, to save the people of Israel. 
And you'll notice in, in the Corinthians passage that he goes on to say the things that are not, God has chosen the things that are not. You know, Joseph was as if he were not. I mean, who is anybody who's down in a prison someplace who wasn't anybody important to start with, as far as the Egyptians were concerned, that he might nullify the things that are. What, what is the purpose of all, of all of this? That no one can boast before God. The thing which keeps most people from believing in God and believing in the Word and trusting in Christ is not that the Word is incredible, not that the whole idea of, of the story of the Scripture is unbelievable. It's human pride. It's the fact that I am able to do it myself and I don't need God or God should be willing to accept me because I'm a pretty good guy anyway. No, not everyone can be a Francis Schaeffer who is a somebody and, and people listen to him or, or C.S. Lewis. The vast majority of witnesses in this world are people, as far as the world is concerned, who are nobodies. People that are known only maybe to their close circle of friends, maybe to a small body of Christ someplace, not otherwise known. So it was with, with, with Joseph. Who knew Joseph? Very, very few people knew about Joseph. Pharaoh had never heard of him. What's interesting is Pharaoh listened because there stood before him somebody who was different. Not a cringing psychophant like he saw around him all the time, but a stalwart spokesman of Almighty God. Now it's true, Pharaoh didn't know this God, but he was learning. A man who, without hesitation, brilliantly interpreted the dreams that the whole brain trust of all Egypt couldn't begin to fathom. Think about that for a minute. You, you dredge somebody up from prison, and he lays out this whole dream before you, which the whole crew of the greatest men in all of Egypt, you know, the, the, the men who were the high priests of the great gods, uh, the men who had studied all the wisdom of the ages, they, they had no idea what the dreams meant. And then let's bring this kid up from prison. And he says, oh, well, that's no big deal. Here's what it is. You know, that, that God, I think God just delighted in that. I mentioned this last time. I think God uh, delighted in showing this guy who was supposedly the son of God, you know, Pharaoh, who he really was, at least in part. I think beyond this, we have to know that God convinced Pharaoh that Joseph was speaking the truth. Now, Pharaoh could have hardened his heart. We know about a Pharaoh who did that 400 years later. Every time Moses and Aaron performed uh, an act that God worked through them and gave the word of the Lord, Pharaoh, were told, hardened his heart. This Pharaoh could have done the same thing, but he did not. God helped him to understand that what he was hearing was true. And what's interesting, I think, and important for us to note is that Joseph's advice to the Pharaoh was as inspired as was his interpretation of the dreams. What he did first was to advise the Pharaoh that he needed a prime minister, someone who was wise and discerning, a man who would be able to prepare Egypt for the coming drought. It would have to be somebody who had a, not only had a vision of what had to be done, was convinced of the truth of it, because when you're in the midst of seven years of glorious abundance, it could be easy to, to think, oh, well, you know, 
the, the drought part probably was just a scare tactic. It isn't really going to happen. Look at all this. I mean, the land is just gurgling with food. How are we possibly going to be faced with, with, with great drought? I mean, the river Egypt of Nile in Egypt, year after year, brought down the moisture and, and the, uh, the fine silt to revitalize the land, and it, it did this without fail. Why should it fail sometime in the future? That could have been the thought. And so Joseph wanted to make sure that Pharaoh chose someone who was wise and discerning. What's interesting is that the word translated discerning in verse 33 implies not only understanding, but perception and the concept of being gifted by God. True discernment is a gift from God. God gives the gift of discernment. Now, all of us are able to discern little things here and there, and we have a measure of discernment, uh, uh, call it uh, common sense or whatever, but to really be able to discern in matters as, for example, Solomon did, that is a gift from God. And that's what Joseph is talking about here, that kind of discernment. It is the same word that Solomon did use, for example, when God said to Solomon, ask what you will and I will give it to you. And Solomon in 1 Kings responded, so give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. That's a God-gifted discernment. And that's what Joseph is speaking about here. He was inferring to Pharaoh that you can't do it, Pharaoh. And none of this court of individuals out here can do it. Now, after they had butted their heads against the dream and come up with nothing, I think most of them were humbled enough to say, well, that's probably true. I wouldn't want to be responsible for doing this when I don't even understand it. Remember, Joseph is standing in the court of a mighty prince. And surrounding him are the great uh, lords of the land, many of them anyway, who were in the capital area, and the great wise men. Well, this isn't a private conference between Joseph and Pharaoh. It's, it's a public audience as far as the lords and the nobles of the land are concerned. They are there too, and so they're hearing these things. But what is interesting is that Joseph gives to, uh, to Pharaoh credit for being wise enough to select such a person. So in one moment, he's kind of flicking Pharaoh upside the head. Not even you can do it, Pharaoh. On the other side, he's saying, but you're wise enough to choose someone who can. Now, such an inference uh, at first probably didn't get by Pharaoh, but in his situation, he didn't take, uh, you know, he wasn't upset by what he, what he heard. Joseph then went on to explain what this wise and discerning man would have to do. First, he would have to tax the people 20% of the grain that would be produced each year for the next seven years. Now, this could be thought of uh, uh, as an onerous tax, particularly since it would be top placed upon the normal taxation, whatever that was. There already were taxes. If you've ever studied the history of Egypt, you can understand something about this. The Egyptian monarchy and the Egyptian nobility spent vast sums of money for the pomp and circumstance of the land. In fact, the old kingdom of Egypt is thought to have come to an end, which is the most glorious period in all of Egyptian history, was thought to have come to an end because 
the, uh, the crown and the nobles of the land bankrupted the land trying to build these great uh, pyramids, for example, which were to serve as tombs, monuments for, for their existence. Very, very expensive. When you think that the tomb of Cheops, according to Herodotus, that's the biggest of the, of the uh, Egyptian pyramids, took 20 years to build. And at times, there were hundreds of thousands of workers working on that pyramid at one time. And, and, you know, you think about it, it's a huge affair. It's made up of millions of blocks. And, so, and, and most of those blocks average a couple of tons in weight. So you can imagine the, the cost that went into it. You know, you just, just think about today what it would cost to do such a thing, even with modern equipment, let alone with the kind of equipment they had where you had to, you know, nudge each stone into place in effect. <laughs> Not quite, but... They didn't have modern machinery to do it. I mean, it was, it was a very, very expensive operation. And so tax, the tax uh, load, we sometimes complain about our tax load here, but our tax load was nothing in comparison. So this 20% is tacked on top. Now, as I said, it could have been seemed onerous, but it probably wasn't in the, fact, in the sense that the, the crops were so abundant. Uh, there was such an abundance of grain that the people could afford the extra 20% and still had great amounts of grain left over. A little bit of the measure of this abundance is seen in the fact that we're told that there would be a 20% tax on the grain for seven years. And that 20% would have to suffice for the next seven years. Well, we'll talk in more detail about that, but that gives you a little bit of idea of how great was this abundance, that that 20% would fill the gap between what little they would be able to grow during the famine time and what the need would be, and even have some left over to sell. We're talking about tremendous burgeoning of crops here in the land. So first of all, the people would have to be taxed and, and grain would have to be collected. Secondly, he said, that this grain would have to be stored in strategically located warehouses in the cities throughout the land of Egypt. And the grain storehouses would have to be guarded to make sure that nobody came and, and stole the grain out while nobody was looking. So this was the plan. The stored grain would then be required to bridge the gap between what was available during the famine and the need. Now, we have to rec recognize that probably during the famine, it wasn't as if not a single grain of, of, of grain, a uh, grain of grain, a uh, single amount of grain could be grown in the land of Egypt. It's just that so little could be grown that the vast majority of people would have starved. So there was this bridging factor with the grain that was to be stored up. Let's turn, if you will, to verse 37 of Genesis 41. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot. And they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph zaphnath paneah and he gave him Asnath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. Joseph standing before this great company of the, of the most powerful and wealthy uh, men of the land in the presence of Pharaoh. And yet he spoke with assurance and he spoke with authority. That authority was given to him by the spirit of the living God. He didn't say, but well, Pharaoh, I th think maybe, you know, may maybe possibly. No. <laughs> he proclaimed the, the, the interpretation of the dream with authority. And that's the way the Word of God should always be proclaimed, is with authority. Because it is the Word of the Almighty God of the universe. As the Scripture tells us, it is forever settled in heaven. It is the only thing on this earth that is eternal besides our spirits. And so it needs to be proclaimed. And Joseph spoke it with such authority. And his advice at the same time was so logical. I, I'm sure that the, that the wise men were kind of batting their heads. Why couldn't I understand that? Why couldn't I see that? It's so simple. It's so clear. No one could find fault with Joseph's logic. He was the only one who was able to interpret the dream. And therefore, he stood before Pharaoh and all of his, quote, servants, when you see the word servant there, don't think of a bunch of butlers running around just, um, we're talking about nobles of the land here. High priests of the gods and goddesses. The great people. They have suddenly accorded to Joseph great respect because he could do what they could not do. As simple as he appeared in their eyes. Pharaoh and his chief advisors recognized that Joseph was in communion with his God. In speaking to his counselors, Pharaoh says, as we read in this passage, can we find a man like this in whom is the divine or a divine spirit? What is interesting is if you look at the Hebrew there in this passage, the literal translation is, rather than a divine spirit, is the spirit of Elohim. Can you find anyone else in whom there is the spirit of Elohim? Now it's true, Pharaoh and his company didn't know who Elohim was except that he was the God of Joseph and that he was the God who revealed this, this dream and therefore he must be a great God even though they'd never heard of him before. So Pharaoh believed that the God to whom Joseph gave credit for the interpretation of the dreams, had placed his spirit within Joseph to give him wisdom. Do people looking at us, as we sometimes maybe hesitantly uh, proclaim God in whom we 
believe, feel that the Spirit of God is in us? Well, they saw the Spirit of God in Joseph. Joseph's belief that Pharaoh was wise enough to choose the right man to carry out this task was not misplaced. But I think it's very doubtful that, that Joseph entertained any thought that he would be chosen the man. After all, who was Joseph? Joseph had too many strikes against him. For example, first was his social status. I mean, he was standing uh, with the, the rich and the famous, the powerful. And he was just drug up out of a prison. Now, that's enough to put you in, 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 a, in a place where you'd kind of hang your head and turn your eyes down, right? If somebody drug you right out of prison and put you in front of the most powerful people in the world, would you stand there as if you owned the world? Probably not. So his social status was against him. He was an imprisoned slave. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't just a prisoner. He had been a slave before he was put in prison. That's the lowest of the low. Secondly, was his nationality. He was a despised Asiatic. Again, I mentioned to you last time, the, the Egyptians hated foreigners. They had, they'd had a kind of an incestuous culture, a culture that bred upon itself with very little outside uh, input. Some, but not a lot, compared to, for example, Mesopotamia, which was constantly being overrun by peoples from the Zagros Mountains or the deserts of Syria or whatever. Uh, so they, they held foreigners in great suspicion, especially Asiatics. And then thirdly was his age. The guy was only about 30. Now today we think, oh, well, 30. I mean, you've already passed your 21st birthday. You can vote. You could do that with 18 now. Uh, you can drink. You can drive. <laughs> Hopefully not together. You, you can do all these things. But 30. Remember when John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States? Well, some of you do. Some of you don't. <laughs> um, I, you know, uh, what, what was the guy's name? Adenauer was the chancellor of Germany, and, and uh, I think de Gaulle was at that time still uh, uh, prime minister in, in France. And here were these fellas who, who were I mean, 80 years old or 75, and, and to them, John F. Kennedy was just a kid who was still wet behind the ears and even looked younger than he was. Talk about a new kid on the block. Well, so they must have viewed Joseph. This greenhorn. And then fourthly, his track record. He was an unknown quantity. He wasn't somebody who had this long track record of interpreting dreams and, and giving wise advice. The only people who knew what kind of advice he could give and how he could function were Potiphar and the chief cupbearer. Those were the only two people of any influence who knew anything about Joseph. Everybody else was ignorant about him, including Pharaoh himself. So can you imagine what possible thought Joseph could have that Pharaoh would choose him with all these things against him? You know, in baseball, three strikes you're out. He has four. But Joseph, to me, as I, as I study this account, is such a clear example of the truth of Paul's benediction that you, we know so well from Ephesians 3.20, don't need to turn to it, where he says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly 
beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly. Is this exceeding abundantly or what? It's as exceeding and as abundant as possibly could happen. I cannot think of another person in history who has been dredged from so low and placed so high. Except, of course, our Lord Himself, who was born in a manger to a poor family in a, in a backwoods town and is the Lord of the universe. In that way, Joseph certainly is a type of Christ. How is it God could do this? He could do it because Joseph, with all his weaknesses, with all his faults, with all his frailties, was totally committed to his God. Although he had been shanghaied from, from Canaan and taken down to Egypt, sold as a slave, improperly imprisoned, languished in prison, people who promise don't carry out their promises, in spite of all of that, he trusted in his God. Even as we noted before, certainly in his mind were thoughts similar to Job's who said, yet though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So this was Joseph's sense at this time. And, and I hope that as we study these things, we don't look at this and say, well, there's Joseph, but his ideal is too high for me. That we don't look at it as an impossible ideal, but something rather that we should aspire to. To be a person such as he was and to know it's just as, a, uh, just as possible for us as it was for Joseph because he didn't have any special status with God that enabled him to do things that we can't do. Joseph was totally committed to God and because of that, God could work through him without hindrance. That makes a big difference. God has a difficult time working through us if we're not committed to Him. Really difficult time. It's not because God can't do whatever God chooses to do. It's because God has chosen to work a certain way. And we can hinder that work because He has chosen to ask for our cooperation. Now, He empowers us with His Spirit. And every once in a while, someone will testify, as C.S. Lewis did, that God drug me into the kingdom kicking and screaming. But for the most part, God nudges us along. God urges us along. It's the still, small voice of the Spirit, not the hammer blows. Joseph was a channel of God's blessing and not a roadblock. Uh, to me, this, this, I don't know how long, where I read or where I, I got it, but it's, it's very you know, simple. We're all familiar with the concept that uh, as we get older, stuff tends to pile up in our arteries, you know, and our arteries get clogged and clogged and stuff gets in there, plaque or whatever they call it, and gets our, our arteries narrower and narrower and blood has a difficult time getting through. Well, sometimes spiritually, that's the way we are. We get spiritual hardening of the arteries. And all kinds of gunk is in there. And God is having a difficult time working through us. And what we need is a spiritual rotor-rooter. It'll go through there and clear out those channels. Well, God has well rotor-rootered Joseph, if you will. All those years in prison did a real thing for him. 
we may look at that as, oh, terrible to be in prison all those years. And I mean, a man of such talent, such ability, languishing in prison, but God had a purpose in it all. Job's, God, God's purpose in doing what he did to Job or allowing what happened to Job to happen was so that we can see the spiritual warfare that is going on and we can believe that God is at work that he will do exceeding be abundantly above all we ask or think if we are committed to him. 400 years later, there would be a man born in Egypt whose name was Moses, and we know his story quite well, I think. But you remember the first years of Moses' life, he was a great roadblock to God's purpose. Oh, he thought he was going to do God's will. He goes out there, murders an Egyptian, hides him in the sand, and has to run from the country. God has to put Moses out in the wilderness pushing sheep around for 40 years to clear the channel, to rotor-rooter Moses so that there would be a channel of blessing. And even then, when he faced the, the burning bush, there was a great reluctance. God put Moses, God put Joseph, God will put us through difficult times and difficult circumstances because he wants us to be a channel of blessing not a roadblock to his purpose. Our selfishness, our pride, our ideas, even sometimes our talents, get in God's way and limit our usefulness. Even as we read in the passage already, because God takes the base things, he, he takes the simple things to confound the wise. He takes a very, very simple little dream to confound, to confound all the great wise men of Egypt and then brings this slave along, foreign slave, to just lay it open so clear, so obvious. As I said before, that the Egyptian wise men, I think they were walking around banging their heads. How is it we couldn't see that? It's so simple. God wants us to be a channel of blessing. I'd like for us, if we could for a moment, turn to the second chapter of Philippians. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. We have stories in Scripture of dozens of men and women that God used, God worked in, God worked through. Joseph and Moses are simply two of them. And these great men and great women of Scripture learned even so as we must learn 
that it is God who is in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who is in us. That God be in us and work through us should be our deepest desire. I, I think when we find ourselves in, in a difficult situation, our thought should be, do I really desire that God be at work in me to bring about His good pleasure? Or is my desire to accomplish my good pleasure? Am I telling God what He ought to be doing? If our desire is not in accord with this, I think one of two things is true. Either we are very immature as Christians, or we're way out on, you know, on a rabbit trail someplace, or we're not true believers at all. I think one of the biggest problems with the church, let's just limit it to America, is that so many people who claim to be Christians don't know the first thing about what it means to truly be a born-again child of God, and therefore as we look at their lives, wonder, how can a Christian do that? How can a Christian say this? How can a Christian have that attitude? Well, it isn't a Christian who's doing that or having that attitude. It's someone who says he is or she is, but who has never had the... the uh, experience of being born again. The evidence that God is at work within us to make us a channel of blessing, which is what we're here for. What was Joseph there for? What, was Joseph there just to enjoy a life? God doesn't have us here just to enjoy life. That's a byproduct. But the main purpose is to be a channel of blessing. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. I know, I'm sure you all noticed. And it's not getting any better. The, the darkness is getting darker. The evidence that God is working within us to make us this channel of blessing is that for one thing, we are learning to do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's hard, isn't it? When you think you're doing your job and you know what you're doing and somebody else comes along, who's got the authority? And they say, I don't think you ought to do it this way. You ought to do it the other way. And you say, all right, I'll do it that way. But in your heart, you're saying, bug off. I know what I'm doing, you know. To, to learn to be in submission to authority, especially God-chosen authority, and to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And if we are learning to become blameless and innocent, that doesn't mean perfect and we walk around with no sin. But it means our heart attitude is to serve God. And we don't have an ulterior motive in there that really what we're trying to do is pretend like we're serving God to accomplish our plan. One of the big problems that uh, American church leadership faces, as Colson points out in his book called The Body, is this 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 placing of uh, leaders, talented leaders, on pedestals and, and looking up to them as if they were somebody and we'll, we'll just keep honoring them no matter what they do or what they say or what attitude they display. And pretty soon they forget that they're not supposed to be lording it over people. They're supposed to be serving. And, and I think that's what's gotten the, some of the great 
television evangelists or whatever you want to call those people into trouble is they have forgotten that if they ever knew that they are to be servants they're not to be having this great fawning crowd out there and I feel really sorry personally really sorry for people who still exalt them in their minds they should never have been exalted in the first place Joseph would be put into a position where people would bow before him, but that wasn't Joseph's choice. That was Pharaoh's choice. We need to be learning to be lights in this world. And notice how that uh, verse ends, verse, no, begins, verse 16 of Philippians 2. Holding fast the word of life. If we don't do that, the rest of it won't happen if we don't hold fast to this. Because this is our source of wisdom, of God's instruction, of God speaking to us. This is where it comes. And if we don't hold fast to that, we're like a ship without a rudder out there. And we're going to be on the rocks. The great cry of the Reformation, as you have heard it so many times, was only the Scripture. Only the scripture what? Was to be the guide for theological truth and how to live a daily Christian life. We've got so many how-to books out there today to tell us how to do everything except how to really know God. This is the how-to book to do that. And actually, we could chuck a whole lot of the others because they try to tell us things that are contrary to the Scripture. You know, all of this self-realization stuff. Self-exaltation. We've got to think we're somebody. Scripture teaches us we need to recognize that before God, yes, we are important and God loves us, but I, without Christ, I can do zilch. And we need to remember that. Joseph didn't, of course, have the Philippians passage in front of him to turn to. But his attitude and his actions make it quite clear that he understood the principles that Paul was presenting in this Philippians passage. Because Joseph was obedient to God, Pharaoh was able to see the light. Joseph was a light before Pharaoh. Joseph, uh, Pharaoh was able to see that light and to respond, as we read in verse 39 of Genesis 41. Since God has informed you of all this, there, was, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. Can you think of anything that you'd rather have said about yourself by someone than that? Since God has informed you, is there anyone as discerning and wise as you are in this matter? You know, this can happen in corporate America. This can happen in, in, in a company, you know, where a decision has to be made and you ask God for wisdom. I think God gives wisdom in those things as well. I mean, what is this? It's a political decision. It's an economic decision. It's not, quote, a spiritual decision. What it helps us to see is there is no bifurcation here between the spiritual 
and the secular, or as we call it. Everyday life is to be infused by God in His presence, even as Joseph knew it to be. And we make decisions at work and decisions at school and decisions in home and decisions about whatever it is. God should be in that decision. And we should ask God for wisdom. And I think He will take us as believers and work through us, even in, in, in let's say, corporate America, and, and we'll be able to bring honor to Him. And people will say, you know, that guy's, or that lady, uh, is, is, believes in God. And, you know, it looks like God's given him wisdom in this thing. I don't know. It can happen. I believe it. I think it ought to. This passage describes one of the most exciting rags-to-riches story in all of history. Joseph was instantly transformed from prisoner to prime minister. None of this climbing the corporate ladder stuff for Joseph. It's from starting off the ladder at the bottom to the top of the ladder in one jump, which, of course, he could not have done in his own strength if it took, had taken him a thousand years. God did it. And his experience, as I look at this, to me became a physical picture of the spiritual truth that is related to us in Psalm 40, in, of course, many places in Scripture, but this passage came to mind. Psalm 40, the first three verses. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. And he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in our Lord. I mean, to me, that's almost like it was written about Joseph. Out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, feet upon the rock, a new song in his mouth, and people will see and fear and trust in the Lord. Did Pharaoh turn to the God of Joseph? Who knows? Scripture doesn't say, and certainly uh, Egyptian history doesn't record it. Did some of the priests of the other gods and goddesses decide that Joseph's God was the true God? Well, we don't know. But Joseph was a powerful witness, and God is faithful. And God worked His will in, in that situation. Well, Joseph, we'll have to bring it to an end here, but Joseph was made second in power in a kingdom of Egypt, and only Pharaoh would be greater. And next week we're going to look at the trappings of that office and what this really meant as far as who Joseph would be and how he would carry out his mission. It's really interesting as you proceed on through the 41st and the 42nd chapter to see how Joseph carries out his task and how God helps him in doing it.